of one of the greatest actresses of all time here joining me tonight here at 9 p.m. Eastern. She's been in a variety of films that you may know, a hit show, Maud, but more precisely in the films, The Fog, Creep Show, Swamp Thing, we can go on and on, Cannonball Run. Adrian Barbeau is here on the show. How are you doing tonight, Adrian? I'm doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoying the October weather? Oh, you know, it has been so weird. I'm here in Los Angeles. We had, it was 90 degrees four days ago, five days ago, and two nights ago, we had a thunder and lightning and rain like you wouldn't believe. So, and then today again, it was up in the high 80s. So who knows? Yeah, it's, it's insane, but I'm glad that it's fall time. How does it feel to be a scream queen? We can start off with this question, especially during <laughs> these times in October. <laughs> You know, Max, uh, Halloween is one of my least favorite. <laughs> so, I know you're not a huge fan of horror movies. I know holidays, that. <laughs> right. And, you know, I spent my life getting, putting on costumes and getting dressed up. It's the last thing in the world I want to do to celebrate a holiday. Uh, I, I, I used to even dread having to get costumes for my kids, you know. <laughs> so, um, but it's a nice time of year. <laughs> here's an interesting question has there ever been anyone that's ever dressed up as yourself that's came to your door on halloween you know no one has ever come to my door on halloween because i live up a uh, up, up sort of up a mountain and and there there aren't too many children although there's a, a big school right down at the bottom of our of our hill um but I've never seen anyone, I don't, God, what would they wear? Well, I guess they could dress up as one of the uh, the characters, mm -hmm. but to, to dress up as me, you know, they, they need a pair of cowboy boots and, yeah. <laughs> uh, and a pair of jeans and a t-shirt. That's probably it. <laughs> and curly hair. <laughs> I want to get into your early life of growing up in Sacramento. How was this experience for you growing up there? Actually, I was born in Sacramento. Okay. My father's, my father had a big family. They were all, you know, Sacramentoites. But my father uh, worked for Mobile Oil, and so he was transferred a lot. We moved out of Sacramento when I was very young, and then I was sort of raised all over California. Spent all of my summers in Selma, California, which is the raisin capital of the world. It's right outside Fresno in the Central Valley because my grandparents had a, uh, a very small grape farm there. And because my mother worked and uh, my father worked uh, summertime, we got shuttled down to grandma and grandpa's house. And so, so I know Fresno. And then when my parents split, my mother ended up in San Jose, which is you know part of the San Francisco Bay area. And uh, I went to junior high and high school and one year of college in San Jose. So I'm probably from San Jose, and, uh, but I moved to New York when I was 19. And so I always say I, I was raised in California, but I grew up in New York. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so interesting to hear your story and moving into New York because most actors and actresses always move to LA if you're from up here. So the fact that you're from... The West Coast, you moved up here. It's always interesting to hear that side of the story. Do you miss the big city at all? Do I miss New York? Mm -hmm. um, I don't... I don't know if I... I don't think I miss living there. I'm, I, you know, I get back as much as I can. And for 20 years, uh, we had a home in Atlantic Highlands in New Jersey. So I was going into the city a lot. Um, but, you know, once my kids came along, I mean, I was already in LA w when I had my first child, but I don't think I'd want to, it's easier raising kids in California, yeah. you know, it's especially in the winter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. The weather is terrible up here once the yeah. cold weather hits. <laughs> but I do miss walking. I miss you know, running into people and seeing friends on the street. And uh, I miss the energy of New York. Uh, 
I would say I miss the fact that everything's open 24 hours, but it's pretty much like that in LA now. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's, it's nice here. You know, I was sitting out by the pool for a half an hour today. I <laughs> <laughs> can't beat that. We know about the, the San Jose Civic Light Opera and your early career, but getting into Broadway, how did you go about that going into New York and becoming involved in Fiddler on the Roof and Grease as Rizzo and winning the, the being nominated for the Tony Award and the World Theater Award, which you won? Well, you know, you asked, uh, you said it was interesting that I had gone to New York from California rather than going from San Jose down to Los Angeles, which my mother would have liked much better because <laughs> it was closer. But I didn't know anything about movies or television. I didn't grow up going to the movies. And um, I started doing theater when I was in high school. So I never really watched TV. We didn't get a television until I was six or seven. And I really don't remember watching a lot. So all I knew was theater stage. You know, I started doing high school productions or I started doing junior high school productions, I guess, and then little theater productions and then working with the San Jose Civic Light Opera, which was a multi-million dollar community theater. Um, but they put on these, you know, lavish, uh, productions that ran for six weeks. And, and so all I knew was, was theater. And I also didn't know that people made a living <laughs> as an actor. That was, I mean, I didn't, you know, my family were farmers and, you know, I, I never crossed my mind that you could do that. So I, um, when I graduated high school, I was part of a musical comedy review. We applied to the State Department and we got chosen to go overseas to the, in those days it was called the Orient, now it's Southeast Asia, you know, we were in uh, South Korea, we were right on the DMZ, we were in Japan and, and the Philippines and uh, Okinawa and uh, a, an atomic testing center called Johnston Island, entertaining the armed forces. So I did that for three months, came back, started college. And then I did another uh, production with the San Jose Civic Light Opera. And there was a, a, a my roommate mm -hmm. uh, in the show had been in New York and she had been in an off-Broadway show. And she said, you know, you want to go to New York. I mean, that's where all the teachers are. If you want to study singing or acting or you want to go to New York. And I thought, oh okay, well, I'll go to New York. <laughs> and I sort of, I said to myself, look, if I'm not earning a living, <laughs> supporting myself as an actor by the time I'm 25, I'll go back to college and I'll get my degree and I'll teach acting, you know. But then get to New York and you basically, in those days, I mean, didn't have a union card or anything. So you just went to open chorus calls, you know, saying the last... 16 bars of, of a ballad and an up-tempo number. And um, along with maybe three or 400 people, <laughs> other actresses that were auditioning. And, um, and after about six months or so, I, I got my first union job. It was a summer stock job. Uh, we worked, we had five days off in three months I think we got paid $75 a week and we had to kick back 35 of it for, to the producer to pay for our rent. Uh, but at the end of those five months, I had my equity card, mm -hmm. you know, which is a big deal if you're an actor on Broadway or in New York, you know. So then I could go to equity calls, open equity calls. And, um, and Fiddler on the Roof just came because I had sent my photo and resume to Shirley Rich, who was the penultimate casting director in those days, this is 1968. She cast all of Hal Prince's shows. I mean, she just cast everything. And I had sent it to her, you know, probably two years before, but she kept it. And she called me and asked me to come in and audition for one of the daughters. The show had been playing for a couple of years. Bette Midler was already in it. Um, B. Arthur had left much, much before me, 
Um, but she just asked me to come in and audition and I did and I got hired and Fiddler led to another off, I mean, I stayed in Fiddler a couple of years because I was a working actor, you know, I, I could pay my bills. <laughs> and, um, and then I left and I did an off-Broadway show and then I just went in and auditioned for Greece and they hired me and that led to that led to my being cast in Maud and coming back to LA. And, and then that was the beginning of more visibility mm -hmm. and my going on to other things. Mm -hmm. I read online that you were a go-go dancer for the mob. Is this true? I was, yes, I was. My <laughs> first job in New York, you know, if you're gonna try and be an actor in New York, you have to have your days free mm -hmm. because you've got to make rounds. You've got to go to auditions. You've got to take classes. So you take a night job. And um, I was hired by, uh, it was, a, I mean, I, it had been what I later found out was it called a clip joint. <laughs> but at the time I was hired, it was a sort of a, a, a small cocktail lounge restaurant called Maddie's Mardi Gras on 49th Street between 6th and 7th. And I didn't know it at the time. My boss was called Maddie the Horse. I later found out, actually probably not until I was writing my memoir, that Maddie the Horse was Matt, actually Maddie Ionello, I think was his last, I'd have to look it up again. And he was, you know, the head of one of the five families. <laughs> <laughs> All I knew was they took very good care of us. You know, they made sure we got in a cab at night. They didn't let the customers bother us. There were times, I remember the first time I asked him if he knew where I could buy a uh, stereo. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, don't worry, I got you taken care of. And the next night, you know, he said, okay, this is my friend so-and-so. Uh, when you leave work tonight, just take a cab and follow him. He's going to be in that brown Cadillac and just follow him down until he stops. And so-and-so stopped the Cadillac and got out and reached into the trunk and handed me a stereo, you know, <laughs> in those days. <laughs> and they were always like, hey, you want to buy a mink coat? You want to buy a diamond <laughs> ring? It was all, um, you know, SWAG uh, stolen with a, Stolen with a gun? Is that what swag meant? I don't remember. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I wasn't sure at the time, but uh, as it turned out, that was Maddie the horse and Maddie's Mardi Gras. <laughs> and amazing. and actually, that you asked about the go-go dancing. When I started there, I started as a uh, a waitress, a cocktail or a waitress really. And then they taught me how to be a barmaid. So I was behind the bar. And um, Maddie had these motorized mannequins on a stage opposite the bar, dressed up like musicians. And, you know, he would play records on the, uh, the what do you call it, the jukebox. Mm -hmm. And the musicians would move like they were playing the music. So the piano player would be plunking his fingers and the drummer would be drumming and everything. And people from outside would look in and think there was a live band. So they'd come in and order their drink and then turn around and it's not a live band, it's just a bunch of dummies. And so <laughs> the customers started getting angry. So Maddie said, you know, hey girls, why don't you get up there and you know, dance, dance to the music. And I was later told uh, by someone who seemed to know that that was sort of the beginning of go-go dancing. Nobody else was dancing on a stage to rock and roll, you know. <laughs> and, uh, um, I quit when they went topless. <laughs> but then I used to go, I used to go out to New Jersey and out to Long Island. Um, uh, I had a, an agent who booked these clubs, you know, and, and it was always respectable. I mean, it, we were, you know, this was before, before what we think of now as, as go, go girls. I, I danced, there was a place down on 8th street or 8th Avenue, no, 8th street called 
Trudy Heller's Eighth Wonder, and I danced down there. Uh, and yeah, this would have been in 65, 66. Wow. And then from there, we, we get into Broadway, then eventually it leads you to Maud. I already know your relationship with B. Arthur. I've heard it hundreds of times, but it was this thing that I read online when you had a, a reunion on The View in 2007 with her on camera. Yes. How yes. was that? It was, uh, you know, I think that may have been the last time I saw B. She, I, I don't know if you know Los Angeles very well, but you can live... If, if one of you lives in the valley, which is what I do, and one of you lives in Malibu, or actually B lived in Mandeville Canyon, I mean, it's only 25 miles away, but you'd be more likely to see somebody living in New York because you ran into them on the street. So we didn't see each other very often. She came, after my children were born in 97, she came over driving her SUV up my hill and swore she would never come back because it was, I, I live on a very narrow winding road and it freaked her out, you know? And so I saw her a couple of times after that, but that, that uh, I guess we were doing a press tour because maybe they had just released Maud as a, as a DVD compilation. I think that's why we were there. I don't remember too well to, what to talk about, but it was just, it was wonderful to see her. It was just, you know, it was as though a day hadn't gone by. And uh, we had a great couple of days together, you know, doing press yeah. for whatever we were promoting. I'm sure it was the DVD. <laughs> and rest in peace to be Arthur, one of the all-time greats and working with Norman Lear, you also had a connection with Norman Lear in the sense that you were able to work with John Amos on Two Evil Eyes. Was John Amos in Two Evil Eyes? Yes, he was the detective. In my segment? I, I'm not sure if in your segment, but- Oh, I bet he detective. was in the one with the black, called the Black Cat. Two yeah. Evil Eyes is a, you know, it's, it's, two, it's, an, it's two different stories. Mm -hmm. A typical George A. Romero, similar to Creepshow. Right, but um, Dario Argento. That's right, he was- The director of the other one with- um, Harvey Keitel, right? Is am I am I getting that right? Yes. You know, I've only watched that movie. What I didn't have any scenes with John. I'm sure. Okay. I don't think he was the detective in ours, but you could be right. Okay. <laughs> I, I just had Grant Kramer just uh, just uh, we ran into each other and he started talking about a play that we had done a reading for. And I swear to God, I had no idea what he was talking about. My memory is, you know, I don't remember a lot of things from my career. <laughs> I might remember them from my personal life, but, but that's interesting. I didn't know that about John. <laughs> I'll have to go back and look at that someday. In, in, in other aspects of the shows and working with Norman Lear, he both had, he had his issues with Norman with the show being written in a certain way where he didn't agree with and going about changing lines for your characters. Because I read about some of your lines that you didn't think that fit your character on Maud. Hmm. You know, it was a very open uh, writer's room, if, if that sort of makes sense. You know, every week we would all get together, the writers and the cast and the producers, and read the script that we were going to do two weeks in advance. And everyone was encouraged to, if something about what they were saying didn't ring true to what they thought the character was, to speak up. Um, I don't remember, all I remember specifically was B was the, the first one to say, you know, I think this line would be funnier if Amy said it or if Conrad said it, you know, she was so giving. I, I, I'm sure there must have been times when I said, you know what, I don't think Carol would say that or, uh, you know, I think she might go this direction instead, you know, but I don't remember specifics, but I do remember that um, they, took, they took our suggestions to heart. And uh, when the script would come in the next week, okay, 
this makes more sense, you know. Getting into your film career, your first feature film, which is The Fog, directed by John Carpenter, Stevie Wayne, your nightlight. Did you draw any inspiration from any radio hosts on the air in your area that you may have listened to in preparing for this role? Not in my area, but in New York. Oh, okay. Uh, Who was that? I remembered back to when I was living in New York, and I think it was WNEW, and her name, oh my God, her name just went out of my head. This is... Uh, oh, I've talked about her so many times because she had such an incredible voice and she billed herself as the night bird. She was on, um, she was on WNEW. I'm going to see if I can't Google her right while we're talking. Um, the night bird, uh, W-N-E-W. Oh, I know her name so well. Uh, Alison Steele. Okay. Alison Steele. And she was wonderful. Are we still working together? Because you disappeared off my screen. Oh, can, can, can you hear me now? I can hear you as long as you can hear me. Are I can okay? hear you. Okay. I can. Alison Steele, the Nightbird. And uh, she just had that really soothing voice. And so. I was I was channeling Allison Steele. I don't know if she's if she's still around. Let me see what this says. She died in 1995. She was born in 37 and died in 1995. And it was WNEW in the 60s and 70s. Okay. That's interesting. See, I'm happy to hear that you drew inspiration somewhere in that role because it's always interesting to hear if there's someone playing someone on the radio who they drew inspiration from. And there we have it. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> Just an all-star <laughs> cast. You, Jamie Lee Curtis, Janet Lee, Tom Atkins, Hal Holbrook, who you would later go on to work with in Creepshow on The Crate. Just establishing these relationships because you stayed close with the majority of the, the cast for years. Oh, I'm still very close with, I haven't seen, I haven't seen Jamie Lee for quite a while, but, mm -hmm. um, uh, Tom Atkins is one of my closest friends. We were just together last weekend, I think it was, or two weekends ago in Baltimore. Um, you know, whenever I get an opportunity, whenever I get asked to do a, 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 an autograph convention, a horror convention, my first question is, well, is Tom going to be there? <laughs> you know, uh, and, Jane, and uh, Nancy, Nancy Loomis, mm -hmm. Nancy Kyes, um, uh, yeah, we have, we were friends before and we have remained friends. Definitely. Right. Chuck Cyphers. Uh, I only get to see Chuck now if, if we both show up at a convention because he lives in Arizona, I think. But, um, but we were all, uh, I mean, I didn't know, I didn't know Janet Lee and I didn't know Hal Holbrook before, before we did it. But Jamie Lee, uh, you know, had worked for John already in Halloween and she used to come out to the house all the time. And, um, and I met Tom in oh, probably 1976 when one of my close friends, a, a, an actress that I had been in um, Greece with, who then went on to do uh, Halloween 3, Garn Stevens, Tom Garn started dating Tom and she brought him to my house for Thanksgiving. And um, unfortunately, the turkey took so long to cook that when we all sat down to eat, Tom had gone out to get a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, he, I just, I love him dearly. Yeah. Yes. It was a great group of people. And it's, it's, irreplaceable at, at that and the remake it doesn't amount up to what you did in the original at all um i'm a purist when it comes to horror films and i'm curious to hear the when you go on top of the, the lighthouse how was that shoot you know uh that was not shot at the actual lighthouse okay um the the top of it was not shot at the actual lighthouse and the interiors were not shot in the lighthouse. Just the exteriors, walking down the stairs, and and and, all, and of course all of the driving sequences, and my house, and um, the uh, 
the candlelit vigil and all of that. But the, uh, the last scene that takes place on top of the lighthouse was shot in a studio and it was shot before the before <laughs> they had any way of controlling the fog juice mm -hmm. except using fans to blow it into a scene. They couldn't evacuate it <laughs> if you're following me. And so John came to me and he said, look, you know, we have to, uh, we have to shoot this scene in reverse. You have to act it in reverse. You have to act it starting with the fog, you, the, 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 the ghost disappearing, you know, and the fog disappearing, and then act backward to, <laughs> are you following me at all? No. It's not easy to explain. No. But I had to act it in reverse, and then they took the film, and they they flipped it over and they developed it that way because all they could do was blow the fog into the set. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> that's the best I can explain it. <laughs> I think I explained it a little better in my memoir, but I'm not sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, we, we, we can understand the picture a hundred percent. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Did they keep the ghosts? from you on set because I, because I know most directors in horror kind of tend to keep the, the monsters away from the cast to get the real effect and emotion out of the actors. Did they keep Blake and his men from you when the reveal actually came? You know, I didn't have any, aside from the, the, the top of the lighthouse where the, and I, it's been so long since I've watched it, but it's only one ghost that follows me, right? Mm -hmm. When, when he's one. banging on the lighthouse door and then up to the roof. Right, and he's got that 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 thing, that hook or something. Um, but I didn't have any scenes with with Blake or any of his his men, so I don't I don't know if they did or not with mm -hmm. the other actors. Um, I just don't know. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> We're just trying to get all the information out for all the horror fans out there with the fog. Being that now that you become a genre actress in, in horror, how did you originally prepare for acting in a horror movie? Because it brings forth such emotion. You have to be stable. You have to be scared. And you played a strong role because you think your son is dead at a time in the film, perhaps. You know, I don't think it, 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 it has nothing to do with the genre, I mean, you're, you know, I just look for the honesty in the character, for the, the background of the character, uh, for how she feels about what's going on around her. Uh, um, never really, I've never, I mean, I've never approached it like, oh, this is a horror film. You've got to act it like this. Um, I just always try and make it honest. And um, I am one of those people who has a very trigger hair uh, fright response. You know? I'll be, I mean, the other day I was just sitting at my computer and my, one of my sons walked in and I screamed and turned because I hadn't heard him standing in the doorway, you know, I mean, so that's not hard for me to do. Uh, and I mean, if you're playing a mother whose, whose son is in danger, you know, that's definitely not hard to play. No, uh, you're terrified for him. And, um, so for me, at least, I don't, um, I, I just don't approach it that way. Mm -hmm. Getting into Creep Show with George A. Romero, you originally didn't want to do this film because there was too much blood, but eventually you worked on the crate. Yeah. <laughs> just tell it to call you Billy. <laughs> you know, they, they sent me the script and I, I didn't know anything about George Romero. I didn't, I mean, I never went to horror films. I didn't know anything. Um, 
and I read the script and I thought, oh my God, this is so gory and it's so, ew, it's so violent and it's this and it's that and everything. And, and I was married to John at the time, John Carpenter, and he's saying, are you kidding me? You, you're going to turn down an opportunity to work with the, the master of horror, to work with George? And um, Tom Atkins had already been cast. So I called Tommy and I said, Tommy, you're going to do this? I mean, this is really sort of vile and, you know, ugh. and he said, oh, Adrian, you don't get it at all. It's stylized. It's going to be a cartoon. It's supposed to be funny. It's like, okay, I'll take a chance. <laughs> and of course, it's one of my favorite things that I've ever done. <laughs> That's right. You love that role as Wilma, uh, Billy. <laughs> yes. Yes. I did love her. I did love her. <laughs> Classic. What was your reaction the first time that you saw Fluffy, which is the, the monster in the crate? You know, everyone asks that. And I mean, <laughs> it's just, a, you know, I don't even know now. I'm not sure if it was an animatronic or if it was a puppet or it was a person or, but <laughs> I wasn't scared. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Years later, you get to take part in the Creepshow series. What did that mean to you? Oh, I was really pleased to do that. And, you know, I mean, obviously it was, you know, the role wasn't Billy. It no. wasn't, you know, it wasn't, she wasn't, uh, she wasn't as much fun, let's say. But, <laughs> but what, what I really was happy about doing it is I had never, I'm sure I had met uh, Greg Nicotero mm -hmm. maybe back when he was visiting the set of Creepshow, you know, when we were all very, very young and he was just getting started. But I had never worked with him as a director and um, I wasn't a Walking Dead fan, so I really didn't know his work. And it was so wonderful to to work with him and to find immediately that I could trust him as a director and uh, that he was really, really good. And so that was that was a, a real pleasure. Mm -hmm. And fans were thrilled to see you back because I, I like that Greg Nicotero pays homage and tries to keep it original. That's something that a lot of directors today, I feel lack as far as the, the remakes go nowadays. I love that Greg Nicotero kept that aspect of his series and paying homage. Yes, yes. That's important. It, it, it really isn't, especially to the horror genre. Swamp Thing with Wes Craven. I know I'm going to touch on this for the sci-fi horror fans. Wes Craven, now, I know you were disappointed, not how it came out, but you felt as though that Wes didn't, because he was so over budget and they kept cutting him down, that he wasn't going to get the film that he wanted. And eventually it turned out to be that. It, it turned out to be a good movie on film. Yes, it did. And that was, you know, a real, and that was only, I, I mean, you know, that was all Wes is doing. Wes wrote this wonderful screenplay that I thought, oh my God, this is just, it, it could, I mean, you know, it was sort of Beauty and the Beast. And I, I thought, oh, this could be just fantastic. And then we got on the set and they just kept undercutting his budget every day. I mean, there was one day when we showed up and there was no makeup trailer because they hadn't paid the bills, you know? <laughs> and it was just, it was horrendous. And he had to keep rewriting and, and cutting out characters, entire scenes and all of that. And the fact that it, it turned out to be as successful as it did, and people love it, people still love it. It's. Uh, uh, is just a real tribute to, to Wes's talent. Mm -hmm. Something that I think that the fans really admired was you going up against David Hess in that film because he was such an enemy on film because of his role in Last House on the Left in which he played just a, a bona fide criminal. <laughs> and see, I didn't know any of that. Mm -hmm. Was that before we did Swamp Thing? Yes, that was. That was oh, Wes Craven's first film. Yeah. I didn't know any of that. Yeah. I didn't know any of that. But you, but you did. You should get the accolades and flowers for being the the brave actor on screen to go against this guy because this at that point that was his infamous role. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, <laughs> there were a couple of times when <laughs> I could have hauled off and slugged him because of the way he was 
throwing me around. <laughs> you know, it was like, uh, listen, we're acting here. We're not, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, he was he was pretty strong. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but I didn't know I didn't know he was he had been a bad guy in something else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, and moving on into the horror genre, moving on into next steps in your career, a cannonball run, back to school, Ronnie Dangerfield, you play his wife in that film. <laughs> that was great. That was yeah. so much fun. Rodney, Rodney's just, I mean, he's as much fun to work with as, you know, as he is to watch. Uh, my favorite story about Rodney is the day, the first day I showed up on the set, and there were all these women standing outside his trailer. And I said to the director, I mean, to, yeah, to the director, I said, what's going on? I mean, why are they all here? And the director said, are you kidding? Rodney is a sex symbol and they all wanna, they all wanna see Rodney. <laughs> and that just tickled me. <laughs> a very lovely man too mm-hmm. and a very um giving man very uh, philanthropic i mean really a, a huge benefactor to comedians and people who were just getting started uh in stand-up uh, yeah he was he was a good guy mm-hmm. uh, oh for sure he was one of the greatest of all time and eventually in the 90s you eventually the voice of Catwoman for the Batman animated series. And you had to go through training in order to do voiceover work for this animated series. When I first, uh, I don't know if it was when I first got to LA, but when I, when my, when my older son was born, um, I, I realized that I didn't want to work full time, you know, I wasn't about to take a a two character TV series where I was working 14 hours a day or anything. And and voiceovers were were a wonderful way to continue to work, but not have to work, you know, 14, 16 hours a day. Mm And so I started exploring that. And yes, I did. I went and took a class in animation, in in voicing animated characters, which is different than doing uh, commercials or even video games or anything like that. And, um, And so it sort of prepared me. And as it turned out, it was many, many years later that I did Catwoman, but the woman that I had taken the class from, which would have been probably in 19, in the mid 1980s, was Andrea Romano, who was our booth director for Batman. And she was fantastic. And uh, so here I was now working for my former teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Life is a full circle. (laughs) Yeah. It really is. We got to get into your album because you also ventured into music, country folk. You released in 1998 your debut self-titled album, Adrian Barbeau. Oh boy, that's a long time ago. Yeah. Well, you know, I was uh, uh, I was doing again. It was something I could do and still raise my first my first son. So I was doing concert appearances and uh, cabaret appearances and club acts and things like that and. And finally, somebody said, "You know, you ought to record all this music for a for for an album." So it's sort of a lot of the songs that I was doing in my act, and just songs that had a great meaning to me or that I loved. Uh, I've never had a real image as a singer, you know, where there were songs that were identified with me. And having started in musical comedy, and I'm not a big musical comedy fan, at least uh, to be singing the songs. Um, these were just songs that that I cared about. Mm-hmm. We got to get into your memoir, of course. There are worse things that I could do released in 2007. At what point 
what was it that you said to yourself that it's time for me to write a memoir? You know, that is a, <laughs> I never, I never said that to myself. Um, what happened is um, on the first day of preschool for my older boy, would have been probably 1988 or so, 89, I'm not sure. Uh, I met a woman who became my closest friend. She was a, uh, a film editor and her son was my son's age and they became close friends. And um, she passed away in 1998 of breast cancer. Well, about four years later, on the first day of preschool for my twins, a woman walked onto the campus who looked just like my deceased friend. And I was so taken aback that I, I, I could feel the blood running out of my face, you know, and she must have noticed it because she said, are you okay? And I said, yes, yes, I'm sorry. I just, you just took me by surprise. You look like uh, a friend of mine. And she said, oh, who? And I said, oh, you wouldn't know her. I said, she was my closest friend and she was a film editor and um, she passed away from uh, breast cancer. And this woman who looked just like my friend Suzanne said, oh, well, I'm a film editor and I have breast cancer. We could be best friends. And it was such a bizarre experience that, um, I, I said, well, you know, what are you doing? Let's go have coffee. And we did. We got together a couple of days later. We, had, we sat and talked for about three hours. And during the course of that conversation, this woman who looked just like my friend Suzanne pulled out a, um, a flyer for a writing class that she had, she had attended. A, they had had a, a workshop, a presentation workshop. It was a writing class for actors and actresses who wanted to write. And it was being taught by an actress who had been on Broadway about the same time I had, who lived about a half a mile away from my house. And that's where she taught. And I saw this and I thought, you know what? This is Suzanne telling me I'm supposed to go take this class. I'd never written before in my life. I kept a journal, but just for myself. I'd never, never crossed, you know, never thought about writing. So I went and started this class. And um, after about six months of bringing in homework assignments, most of which were little stories about things that had happened to me in my career or dating Burt Reynolds or uh, being married to John or, uh, you know, doing doing this horrendous horror film that I refer to as the rat movie in Moscow and landing on the day of an attempted coup when the entire country went into uh, uh, martial law, you know, things like that. Um, after about six months of writing these little pieces, the, the teacher said to me, you need to get an agent because I think you have a book here. And so uh, I got an agent and I got a publisher and I published my first book, which was There Are Worse Things I Could Do, which I chose because it's the song that I sang in Greece. And it's just a series of, of chapters, each one about something that maybe I took for granted in my life, but that I thought, you know, people might enjoy reading about doing Cannonball Run or, uh, you know, how I got in the business or things like that. So that, that was the first one. And then uh, another author approached me and talked about writing a, uh, a horror series for my fan base. And so we came up with an idea and we co-wrote Vampires of Hollywood. And then my co-author left the project and I went ahead and wrote the sequel to Vampires of Hollywood, which was called Love Bites. And then the third installment, which is called Make Me Dead. And they're all about a uh, scream queen who is the 
uh, head of a small film studio in Los Angeles. And she's also a 450 year old Armenian vampire whose clan includes all of these A-list Hollywood actors like Orson Welles and uh, Mary, Pickford, <laughs> Mary Pickford and uh, Robert Downey Jr. And um, somebody is killing off the A-list Hollywood actors. And so she hooks up with the hunky Beverly Hills detective. And, uh, <laughs> and it's sort of a vampire series. <laughs> and, and then I just finished co-authoring uh, a book about Greece. It's a collection of stories and memories from over a hundred actors, many of whom you will know, you know, John Travolta and Treat Williams and Mary Lou Henner and Peter Gallagher, all of whom appeared either in the Broadway productions or in the uh, national tour and the first bus and truck tours, uh, all of whom sent us stories that they wanted to tell about their experiences uh, doing Greece. And it's very um, funny and moving and uh, interesting. And we've got about 250 photographs, most of which have never been seen, uh, you know, candids and, and stills from, from the various productions. And so, that's, uh, that will be coming out next year, not in time for the anniversary of Greece, which is Valentine's Day of next year, but hopefully by the summer for the 50th anniversary of Greece. And we're donating the proceeds uh, to the Actors Fund. Wow, congratulations so, on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to having it come out. I think people are gonna enjoy it. Mm -hmm. I think so too. And in a part of your memoir, journaling was a big part of your life and your early life, especially. Do you still journal to this day? Do you keep a journal? You know, I, I do off and on. I'm not religious about it anymore. I kept one for my boys. Um, and I was pretty religious about that. Now it's, well, a couple months might go by and then I'll, this, is, this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. But I used to, up until, oh, maybe 15 years ago or 20 years ago, you know, every night before I went to bed, I'd write in it. It was sort of my way of figuring out my life, you know? <laughs> Getting well, an sort understanding of, of why I was doing what I was doing or, you know, why I was feeling what I was feeling and all of that. I, uh, I think it's a great tool, mm -hmm. especially I, I for so. young people, especially for like teenagers and, you know, 20s and 30s. And because then you go back and you look and you say, oh, my God, that's that's what was going on. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I've heard about the harassment stories and then in particular one with a cartoonist that you went through. Now we see the, the women empowerment. Now in today's day and age, you see the, the women speaking out. Do you feel that the tide has really turned? Because I'll tell you a quick story because I'm starting to get into acting and I went to apply for this acting thing in New York. And when I went to the office to fill out my application, they had this whole thing about harassment and sexual assault and they have you fill out all this paperwork. And if you look around on the walls, you have all these movie posters of Harvey Weinstein and Woody Allen and all these people that have been accused of such horrible things. Do you feel as though that, that this harassment and assault thing is going to be taken seriously or is it just here's the paperwork and there's going to be people that just still do what they do around that unfortunately hmm. no i think i think the tide has turned i don't think we i Good. mean we've gone back in many ways in our society you know when you look at the the abortion laws in Texas. Oh yeah, that's look at the, the voting, uh, voting rights, and the gerrymandering, and every we you know we've taken giant steps backward. Oh yeah. But I think in terms of sexual harassment and uh, you know 
I, I, I don't think we're going to go backwards on that. I don't think, I, 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 no, I think, yeah, I, I, I think all of the, everything is in place to provide safety or provide at least a platform for people to, to take their, I don't want to call them complaints, to take their stories to the powers that be and, and have someone act on them. Is that answer? <laughs> yes, that is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, it, it, and that's, it's, it's important that, it, that the stories are finally being heard and that people are held accountable for their actions. And hopefully yes. more people feel comfortable to, to tell their story, especially in the older generations to come forward and just getting into your, your video games, because you eventually voiced some video games. Yes, Halo. Yeah. Halo. Halo is one that you're a huge fan of. And you did some voiceover work for Mad Max, too, in 2015. I did Mad Max. I was pigsty. I am the overseer in um, Fallout 76. Mm -hmm. I am Hera in the God of War. And, right. and I think I'm in two Gods of War. I've done, I've done you know, maybe a, maybe a dozen uh, Batman Arkham Asylum and um, got a couple more that I'm supposed to do once they get the scripts written and, uh, you know, they're fun. Yeah. They're fun. Um, Mad Max, I don't think that was motion capture. Halo 4 was motion capture, which was also interesting to do, you know, where you're in an entire suit and you, you are actually acting. You're not just using your voice, um, but the one I, I the, the the most recent one, I guess, or the one that I think is probably the most popular right now, is uh, Fallout seventy six. Is mm -hmm. it is it Redemption seventy six? It's Fallout seventy six. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, and then the other thing I do. Um, oh well. Uh, can I talk about a couple of things that are coming up? Oh, of course, <laughs> take take as much time as you need. Well, <laughs> we well we've only time. got we've only got another ten minutes, right? Yeah. <laughs> you go off the air at seven or at uh, whatever time it is there. At ten, My yeah. Seven, at ten. Okay. Well, I do have another horror film out right now on uh, Amazon Prime called Unearth. It's not so much a horror film as it is a drama that turns into a horror film, I think. It's an ecological horror film. Mm -hmm. There's that one. I have, only because I really, I just love this episode. I did an episode of AJ and the Queen on Netflix. That's, uh, that was uh, RuPaul's series. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm in the third episode and, and I just really like the character in that one. And coming up, dropping in November, I can't talk too much about it, but they have released the trailer. Uh, Netflix is releasing a live action version of Cowboy Bebop, which I saw was, that. yeah. And for your viewers who don't know, Cowboy Bebop was a huge, hugely successful anime series and film, I believe, in the 90s. And, uh, and, and the character I'm playing is, uh, she was quite fun. So that'll be coming up. And then when I'm not acting, I've got a couple things that are still, you know, in post-production because, because the pandemic hit and everything sort of shut down. But when I'm not um, acting, I do video describing for the blind for many television series and feature films. And what that means is if you're watching TV and you put your SAP channel on, your supplemental audio programming channel on, <laughs> and if you are uh, visually impaired, you hear the actors speaking and in between the dialogue, you hear my voice or another narrator's voice describing what's going on on screen. 
So for instance, one of the shows that I do is um, SEAL Team. So, you know, you might hear, you hear the, the, uh, the actors speaking to each other and then you will hear me say, he turns to the rest of the group or he raises his rifle and fires at the, you know, you know, and I'm describing what's happening on screen. And I really enjoy doing that. It, it, in the first place, it gives me an opportunity to watch series that I probably might not watch if, if it was. <laughs> um, it's, I just, I don't know, I just sort of enjoy it. And, and, uh, and it's, you know, it's just another form of voiceover work. And that's great that you do that because that's so important. And that just shows that how down the earth that you are and how compassionate you are for other people that, that you would take the time to do that. And, and you take pride in that. Well, uh, yeah, I do. I do like it. Yeah. I do like it. I mean, it's not, I'm not doing it compliment. You know, I, I'm getting paid for it, Yeah. <laughs> you, know, but, uh, you know, but I'd probably do it even if I weren't, you know, just because I, I like it. I like it. We got to touch on your son, too, because he does some work for some hip hop artists as a producer. I researched. Oh, I have I have three sons. All of them are really just I'm so proud of all three of them. My older boy is is Cody Carpenter. He he did some work with John on the Halloween soundtrack. Yes. Cody. Cody is John's right hand man. Cody does. uh, you know, I don't know if any if any of your audience saw the uh, tour that they did. Ooh, I guess it was maybe two, three years ago now. Um, John Carpenter's Lost Themes tour. They they traveled the world. Uh, Cody is Cody's on synth, and uh, uh, and uh, they s- scored Cody and John Carpenter and Daniel Davies, John's other. John's godson, mm-hmm. all are just scored the Halloween that's just coming out. And um, I think they will be doing the next one. And Cody also has his own following. He uh, has, I don't know how many albums out of his own music. So that's Cody. And then there's William Van Zant by, by Will Sound, I think. I don't, what is his producing name? Um, and William, William's only 24. He's uh, already got one gold album and one platinum album. He is producing hip hop and he is just, he's just really, he's doing a great job. And then his twin brother, Walker, is uh, a fashion designer. Wow. And uh, he's also a product manager for a major fashion company here in, in LA. Uh, but he has his own line of uh, street, you know, men's street streetwear, I guess you'd call it, hip hop streetwear mm-hmm. called Mine Until Morning. Okay. And uh, so I'm real proud of all three of the boys. And congratulations to all their achievements thus far. And speaking of achievements, what do you think is your greatest career achievement? And what are you looking for towards achieving next throughout your career? My greatest career achievement, I think, would be that I have managed to earn a living in this business since 1963. (laughs) You know, I have never had to take another job. I've never had to do anything else to support myself. Once I got out of the discotheque, you know. (laughs) Um, So I sort of think that's because this isn't an easy business, you know, and and it's not an easy business to continue in. Um, so I, maybe that, that's what I think of as my greatest career achievement. My greatest achievement in life is my children. There is no question about that. And you always put them first and foremost, that's for sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's just the way it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One a last question for the horror fans out there, because you work with an extraordinary amount of talented horror writers and directors throughout the years, John Carpenter, George A. Romero, Wes Craven. What made those legends irreplaceable in the genre of horror that just makes them so irreplaceable? 
Hmm. Well, I, I mean, they're just incredibly talented. I don't know, you know, uh, yeah, they just, all three of them working for them, I would say, you know, they knew what they wanted. They knew how to get it. I'm, I'm talking about working with actors. Mm -hmm. um, they had a vision. They understood. They just, you know, uh, whether they're, whether it was a, a God-given talent or whether, I'm, I'm sure it starts with a God-given talent and then they, they learn their craft and um, they just were all incredibly talented. That's all I can say. <laughs> oh, Adrian Barbeau, I, I want to thank you for coming on the show here tonight. It was a true honor. And anytime you want to come back on the show for anything that you need to promote, even for 10, 15 minutes, anything that you ever need, you're always welcome on the show. Thank you. Well, maybe I'll see you, you know, late next summer and we'll talk about Greece, tell me more, tell me more. <laughs> yes, I love that. I'll keep in touch with your your manager agent who helped set this up. I want to give a big thank you and shout out to her. She was amazing at setting this interview up and the listeners enjoyed it. And and I appreciate everything that you've done in, in film, especially for horror as a huge horror fan and everything that you've done throughout your career. Thank you, Max. Thanks. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Adrian Barbaro, I want you to enjoy the rest of your night and, and stay safe during these times. And I look forward to everything else that you have coming up in your career. Thank you. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Adrian.